I was there, when I was in Vietnam, there were over 500,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. Long Bin Base Camp, which is a setting uh, for some scenes in, in my novels, uh, had 60,000 American troops stationed there. It was, it was a small city and it had the, all the problems that you know, cities have. Everybody hears about the 58,000 plus American soldiers who died in combat. Almost 10,000 soldiers died in accidents. And there were 236 homicides, according to the website I looked up. People were murdered, just like in any other city. Uh, and you got to remember, everybody had a gun. Well, hello there. Welcome to The Writer, The Reader, and The Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 3. I'm your host, author Danielle St. Just. It's my opinion, and the opinion of lots of people, that writers can't help but put their own life into their fiction. Some writers, maybe even most of us, do it subconsciously. But sometimes you find a writer who does it with full intention, who's actually taken the time to dissect his life's experiences and the influences he deems important and consciously puts them into his fiction. Meet Bob Calverly, author, Vietnam veteran, journalist, and lover of life. Not only will he show us through his words a different side of the Vietnam War than many of us have experienced in fiction, but he's also got enough book recommendations to make your bookshelf sag in the middle or your Kindle bust at the seams. Some of us are history buffs, but Bob is even more than that. He's a life buff. So let's dive right in. Join me as I discuss writing, American history, and life in general with life buff Bob Calverly. Get ready for the writeriest, readeriest, and wordiest half hour ish. So, welcome, Bob. You are a very illustrious personage. Welcome. Thank you. I don't know. If I sold more novels, I'd be more illustrious. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on this podcast. You are you have such an interesting life. What has always impressed me about your writing is that you are able to bring so much of your life experiences and your um, just your talents into your fiction. Well, yeah. Uh, I think when I was in Vietnam, I went I went to Vietnam in. 1968 in, in July, um, I was 24 years old. I'd already been to college, uh, graduated from Michigan State University with a degree in journalism. And uh, I think when I, when I got to Vietnam, I always knew I was gonna write about it sometime. Um, I, was, I, I found it to be a very interesting experience because it's not, my experience is not similar to what most of the uh, memoirs and books about Vietnam have been about. I was in an assault helicopter company. It was a really interesting uh, place to be. I mean, it was the cutting edge of high-tech warfare uh, of that time. I mean, basically units like ours were establishing the whole doctrine of air mobile warfare and the pilots and flight crews talked about it all the time. We, we were in a base camp. We weren't out in the jungle. We were in a base camp. I slept on a mattress every night. We had hot chow in the, you know, in the mess hall. Uh, we had uh, running water, although it came from a, you know, a, a, an old aircraft uh, tank. 
<laughs> it had to be filled every day, but it, and it wasn't heated. But but it was still pretty comfortable, uh, uh, a lot more comfortable than I expected. I mean, I really thought when I was going over there, or when I got drafted, I I was going to end up in the jungle, sleeping on you know out in the bush, and uh, that was kind of scary thinking about it. The books and the movies about Vietnam really heavily focus on that aspect of the war. Uh, grunts slogging through the jungle and, you know, ambushes and, and that sort of thing. And that just wasn't my experience at all. And uh, I think it's important. Uh, I wanted to bring to life sort of that aspect of the war. I was there when I was in Vietnam, there were over 500,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. That was the peak of the, uh, of the American involvement. Uh, Long Bin Base Camp, which uh, is a setting uh, for some scenes in, in my novels, uh, had 60,000 American troops stationed there. It was, it was a small city and it had the, all the problems that you know, cities have. Everybody hears about the 58,000 plus American soldiers who died in combat. But I looked up some stats before, before this podcast Almost 10,000 soldiers died in accidents. I think the exact number is like 9,100 and something. One of my friends uh, in another unit uh, was hit in the head by a helicopter rotor blade. Wow. Uh, so he would be an accidental death. He gave his life for the you know first country like, like those killed in action, but he was probably recorded as an accidental death. Uh, there were 382 suicides that they recorded during the war. Uh, Almost a thousand soldiers died of illness. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of bad infections you could get in, in Vietnam. Um, and there were 236 homicides, according to the website I looked up. People were murdered, just like in any other city. Uh, and you gotta remember, everybody had a gun. It was a, it was a war. I mean, I think a large portion of those murders were fraggings of, uh, of probably uh, officers by, the, by troops who were afraid they were going to get killed because of poor decisions and they had been stuck with a lieutenant or something that, that was doing things that they didn't like. Anyway, that's a whole you know sort of setting that I, that I wanted to bring to life in, in, in my novels. Uh, they're not war stories, although they take place during a war. I was inspired probably by a lot of the World War II war stories, which has almost become a genre of its own. There are so many World War II stories right now, and they are romances set in the war. They are murder mysteries set in the store. They're spy stories. I mean, I really like Ken Follett's stories, uh, Eye of the Needle, uh, Triple. World War II is just a backdrop to telling a story. Yeah, that is actually, that's so true. And I can think of several stories, really popular stories right now that are just set in World War II as you said, as a backdrop. And I had, uh, I thought, a pretty unique experience that serves as a unique setting, you know, to write some fiction. And the other thing, uh, you know, I mentioned the World War II, um, you know, how it's almost become a genre. That was a war in which we were on the side of good. Uh, we won the war, uh, we defeated evil. Everybody looks back at, at that with a, with a good feeling. The greatest generation fought that war. Since then, none of the wars that the United States has been in have been very satisfying. They haven't turned out very well. In Vietnam, we basically lost that war, despite having overwhelming 
technological and you know superiority. And it just is not something I don't think people want to think about. Uh, and yet, it was a huge thing uh, for my generation, for the baby boom generation. And uh, again, I want to write about that. Uh, I don't think it's as commercially viable. I should write a World War II novel, but I really don't know that stuff. So that was fascinating. What you said that it was um, a small city, that that base camp. The fact that you are writing about it, you're not necessarily writing about battles, but you're writing about other desperate problems in that city that just grew up in Vietnam. It's, it's extremely interesting and it is very fertile ground for, for novels. We had a, a Long Bin, uh, there was a jail in Long Bin, Long Bin Jail. It was the biggest jail for Americans in, in Vietnam. And there was actually a, a, basically a riot at that jail. This is after I left. Vietnam. There were enough Americans uh, imprisoned in Vietnam and in, in, in Long Bin Jail that they had a riot there because it was so overcrowded. There were too many Americans there. They actually, I have uh, some scenes in um, Sunshine Blues that take place in Long Bin Jail where um, the hero ends up in a conics, you know, which is a shipping container, a metal shipping container. And they really did put Americans for a short period of time in shipping containers like that because one, it was safer. There were a lot of racial tension between blacks and whites. So they tried to keep them separate. That's some pretty desperate people too. They had people accused of murder and most of, most of the people in Long Bend Jail were there for serious crimes awaiting uh, shipment back to the United States where they were going to be court-martialed and probably end up in Leavenworth. Oh, geez. So. <laughs> yeah, I love I love how you use that time as inspiration. And I and you've had such an interesting life. You were also a reporter. How did you get started as a reporter? Tell me about that. Well, I switched my major from actually I was a pre-med student first two years in college, and I switched to journalism when I went to Michigan State because I like writing so much better than uh memorizing all of the, uh, you know, the science and the, you know, the biology terms and, and that sort of thing. And I end up with a degree in journalism. I ended up getting this horrendously boring job <laughs> uh, editing uh, academic articles on concrete technology, the American Concrete Institute in Detroit. And I came into Detroit in July of 1967, freshly out of Michigan State. And I see a column of smoke, you know, in the in the sky as I'm driving towards Detroit. And it was a Detroit riot. It started wow. the day I, I arrived. <laughs> anyway, when I came back from Vietnam, I quit my boring job, which had been held for me, and uh, went back to grad school. And I got a part-time job as a reporter and a photographer at a weekly newspaper while I was going to grad school. And I was a reporter at Detroit Free Press. And my wife was a reporter for uh, Detroit News. They were the fifth and sixth largest daily newspapers in the nation at that time. I worked for organized medicine and I worked for um, uh, University of Southern California. I worked for Rand Corporation. So all of my jobs were writing and editing. And as a reporter, I mean, I won a, I won a prize for environmental reporting when I was in Detroit. But I also, I was medical writer for a year at the Free Press. Then I got onto that environmental accident. They accidentally mixed a fire retardant with the cattle feed. And people were eating 
you know, milk and eating eggs and eating meat that had polyglominated biphenyls in them. And, uh, you know, we talked about steaks that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't grill because they were fireproof. (laughs) I covered police for uh, uh, quite a while in both the Sun Sentinel and the Free Press. And police reporting, I mean, at that time, when I was a police reporter in Detroit, it was the um, mid to late 70s. And Detroit had the murder, highest murder rate in the nation. And it was, it was depressing. I mean, every day people would be murdered. And most of the time, it was a small story in uh, the inside of the newspaper because it was domestic violence. And you know, mon- this, these were mundane crimes. The city desk wasn't particularly interested in it. They wanted a real whodunit murder if you were going to be on the front page or, or something like that. Or a celebrity or something. Exactly. And, yeah. and it was it was depressing. And that's another thing that, you know, that I, you know, that's kind of driven me on. Vietnam veterans were very unpopular after the war. And uh, oddly enough, in fact, it probably wasn't odd, that odd. But the World War II vets who ran the veteran or, veterans organizations didn't like us because they saw us as losers. Oh, geez, I didn't know that. Well, you know, it wasn't all of them. It certainly wasn't probably even most of them. But they thought we had it soft because we only had to serve a year in Vietnam. Well, whereas they were in, you know, they were in the military for the duration. But for most Vietnam vets, it was a pretty intense year for a lot, lot of them anyway. My helicopter unit, I'd say in the first six months I was there, the pilots especially never got a day off. They flew combat missions every single day, seven days a week and 24 seven. I mean, we had to fly out at night, you know, often when there was an attack at night. It was uh, a very intense experience. I mean, your World War II pilots, they made these long trips, bombing runs to uh, to Germany, and they were exposed to the flak and stuff for you know for probably five or ten minutes, and then a long journey back. Yeah, it was very tough, and they would serve twenty five missions, and usually after that they got rotated out of it. There was no relief for a lot of the uh, the pilots in Vietnam. I mean, air crews had one of the highest casualty rates in in the war. Almost 5,000 air, you know, helicopter air crew died in, in the war. It was an intense experience. And uh, again, it's an aspect of the war that, you know, that hasn't been written about all that much. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about how different it was between World War II and Vietnam. I'm sure there were a lot of parallels, but there are also a lot of fundamental differences from the warfare to the to the experiences to the, yeah. you know, to the outcome. Of course, everybody knows the outcomes. But it's those day-to-day experiences that probably people, you know, still don't know unless you've been there. It was a very difficult thing for the soldiers who were who were there. Nobody wanted to die when, you know, when they knew the war was, you know, we were pulling out. And that's when the drug problems and everything over there got really pretty bad. Yeah, you don't want to be the last person to die. No, especially in what was appearing to be a losing cause. But I, I wanted to write stories. I wanted a, you know, sort of an adventure story, the way uh, Ken Follett used to do. Uh, the war is going on, but there's a story that's taking place in the middle of that war. And that's what, what I was trying to do. And, and in the middle of that war, that war is affecting people in, in, uh, in the United States. So 
half of my those books take place in the United States. You, you do such a good job of showing that not only do the things that are happening in Vietnam influence the the what is happening in the United States, but vice versa. The characters, uh, trials and tribulations in the United States are directly impacting the character in Vietnam. And the absence of that character from what's happening in the United States is felt so keenly showing the hole that this person's absence leaves. Thank you for that. I did want to ask how you got started writing fiction. Have you always wanted to, or did it, is it something that came out in college? And how is it similar to and different from being a journalist? I think I was always telling stories to myself anyway, uh, when I was a kid. Uh, my mother used to make up stories and then tell tell and tell them to me when I was very young, six or seven, and she started, she created a character called Square Peg Pete. And Square Peg Pete had a peg leg, but you know, it was square. It wasn't a round one, and it was always getting stuck in in, in places. So she told me. I remember her telling me <laughs> these stories. She was making them up as she went along, and they were so good that I, you know, my friends would listen to them too, you know, because they always ended with Square Peg Pete getting his his uh, peg stuck in a in a round hole or something like that. It's just it was crazy. <laughs> but anyway, I had this kind of background of, of you know telling telling stories. When I was in college, I took a fiction um, course and I and I wrote a couple of um, character profiles and and tried a short story. I, I did. I had one assignment in a in an English class at Michigan State. I was supposed to write a paper on hubris because we'd been studying the Greeks, and uh, I left it until the almost the last day. <laughs> and I went, "What am I going to do?" I don't, I had to look it up in the dictionary. I wasn't sure what it meant. So I wrote a short story instead that I've been thinking about for a while and uh, wasn't a very good short story. At least I look back at it now and I don't think it was very good. And I turned that in and I did manage to get the word hubris into the short story. And and I got an A on 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 it and, and the instructor held it up for the class. I mean, this is like 100 people taking this course and said, I have no idea what this has to do with hubris, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I really squeaked out of that one. <laughs> I was reading at that time a lot of science fiction, and I read a lot of science fiction short stories. I really liked Robert Heinlein and Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And I wanted to do that. And I had friends, and we used to talk about uh, science fiction story concepts all the time. And uh, sometimes we would even get around to write, starting to write some of them. But I never, I was never able to finish most of the things I started. And uh, after the war, uh, I started trying to write some fiction, but life got in the way. I mean, I was married. I had to get a, I had a job. Uh, I had to go to work every day. Uh, then we had kids, and I just was never able to get it to get it done. And so I didn't really start writing fiction in earnest until I retired. Uh, and I retired when I was 62, and started working then part time. And I had more time to write fiction. So that's when I started writing Purple Sunshine. But although I'd made many previous starts that, you know, that sort of didn't go anywhere, I can remember making all of the classic mistakes that first-time fiction writers make. All my stories started with a horrendous amount of backstory. about the, I had a character, and I had to keep explaining how he was the way he was 
and it was all this backstory and nothing was happening <laughs> and I'd start over again. And then I finally get the story going and then I realized he needed another character to, you know, to react off of, uh, you know, he needs a girlfriend. So then I made all the same mistakes again, you know, with that character, lots of backstory and everything. And I finally got that straightened out. And uh, yeah, it's very true. And there's a lot of stuff that can be known by the author. And, and usually at the beginning, there's at least some scenes that the author has to write, but they don't necessarily have to be in the book. So it's, it's like crucial for the author to get yeah. those down, get those out and formulate those scenes. But then those scenes are backstory and can be taken out of the, the piece. They make the whole piece much richer because that, that knowledge is formulated and is encapsulated into those scenes by the author. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just characters are, are important and, uh, you really need to think about them a lot, I think, before you start, or you waste a lot of time kind of floundering around establishing them. Uh, when I finally started writing the actual story and not all of the backstory crap, by then I had two fairly solid characters, especially the girl. I, I don't do any outlining or, or anything like that. I sort of let the story go where it's going to go. It's really, it's almost like the characters are telling me their story. They're telling me their experience and I'm writing it down. And the more I understand my characters, you have to have a good setting and everything too. I mean, I had all that in my head, but I really didn't know what was going to happen until, you know, it's like I said, the characters seem to tell me the story. I write a scene and, and that leads to another scene because really, you know, this is what's going to happen after that. And just, and I didn't know it when I wrote the first scene, but I, by the time I'm done with it, I'm already, you know, seeing the next scene and it's coming from, you know, from the characters. I guess it, I call it writing into the dark. And I think many novelists do this, if not most of them, because it seems to me to be a natural way to tell a story. It's a difference between plot-driven story and character-driven story. Um, I really do think that the story is way more important than the quality of the writing. And some of the writers that have inspired me have shown me that. Uh, Stieg Larsson in particular, from uh, he did the uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo series. Yep. He three of them before he died. And really, I mean, as a fiction writer goes, his craftsmanship with words and everything isn't all that great. But the stories are fascinating. And the character, uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is just such a strong character that basically she carries that story all the way through three novels and probably would have gone a lot longer if, it, oh. if he hadn't died. Yeah, Lisbeth Salander. Yeah, what a character. Well, this uh, segs very well into my next series of questions uh -oh. <laughs> about, yeah, about books that have inspired you. So my first question is to give us a favorite book from your childhood. I don't know if you're going to choose your mom's stories, but give us again the character's name. It's, it's, it reminds me of SpongeBob SquarePants. Square Peg Pete. Square Peg Pete. Even if you don't choose him. No, I'm not going to choose him. Uh, you, it has to, be, has to be honorable mention. So Yeah. I think my favorite book when I was a little kid was, uh, it, they're called Mother Westwind Stories uh, by Thornton Burgess. And there were stories about, there was a, a Mother Westwind was a sort of like a god, goddess-like creature in, in the air. And all of the rabbits and squirrels and, you know, little creatures in the forest had stories to tell. 
there was a whole series of Mother West Wind stories uh, by Thornton Burgess. And um, my parents read them to me before I could read. And when I started to learn to read, I started to learn to read by reading the Mother West Wind stories. And that was about the time I was in kindergarten. When I got older, I started reading the Hardy Boy Mysteries. I read every Hardy Boy mystery book I could get my hands on. The library had a lot of them. And uh, some of my friends and, you know, would, would buy a Hardy Boys mystery or get one for Christmas or something like that. And, and I, you know, once in a while, I would save enough money to buy one. Yeah, those Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries were much more um, exciting when I was a, uh, was a child than they are now. That's for sure. I've gone back and read a few of the Heinlein books uh, that I hadn't read first time around. And I don't think they held up very well either. That Some of the tech stuff seems very illogical to me, but... Yeah, they're of their time. They're of their time. And uh, I don't think Heinlein was as good at predicting technology as, say, Arthur C. Clarke or, or Isaac Asimov. They, they hit on some things that, you know, that, that turned out, you know, fairly close to being dead on right. Did you, I'm not sure if you ever read uh, Clifford D. Simak. He write or wrote what you would probably today call climate fiction or cli-fi. And he was good at predicting in the environmental conundrum we find ourselves in today. Wow. Yeah, so some, some of the writers of that era were actually really good at predicting what was coming. And some, as you said, some weren't. Yeah, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, is general, I think generally given credit for the whole idea of uh, geostationary satellites, communication satellites. Uh, although, I don't know, he must have gotten the idea from someplace, but most people refer to him when they, you know, for that technology. What is a favorite book that you've read recently? Like in the past, let's say six months? I read a, I read a book uh, called Born. B-O-R-N-E, and it's by a guy by the name of Jeff Vandermeer. And it's maybe the best dystopian fiction that I think I, that I've read. Wow. Uh, I really enjoyed that, uh, you know, that book. I don't know whether it just was published, you know, in the last six months. I, I read it in the last six months, but it's fairly recent, I think. Uh, I'm plowing through, I'm kind of saving them, not reading them all at once. But I, there was a thing I found, I get a lot of books from BookBub. I bought the um, Tubby Palooza, which has nine or ten mystery stories about a you know it's about a New Orleans lawyer named uh, Tubby Dubonnet. He's a colorful character, drinks too much, you know, eats too much, and there's a murder mystery in in every one of the stories. I think I've read about half of the Tubby Palooza right now. I've really been enjoying them. They're best, and I don't like legal legal stories as much as. Uh, you know, usually I shy away from those, but this one has been really good. I read a, um, a thriller called No Exit that was one of the best thrillers I've ever read. I think it's being made into a movie. It's by Taylor Adams. Uh, it's about a, a young woman who's uh, graduated from college, but she's on her way home to see her mother who is, you know, pretty seriously ill. And she gets uh, stuck in, a, in an exit in a rest area. Uh, in a blizzard in uh, in Colorado, mm. and there's some really nasty people there. <laughs> so that one was good. Oh, The Marsh King's Daughter. Uh, I just finished reading that a couple of weeks ago. 
that's also being made into a movie. It's it's about a young uh, woman who is kidnapped and held for many years by uh, you know by a guy, and it's told from the point of view of her daughter who was born while she was being held, uh, and it takes place in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, in a very remote area. There's a lot of you know there's been a few stories like that that have occurred and have gotten a lot of media attention, and I think the author covered some aspects of that that you really don't think about too much. And I just, I just found it, and it was really well done. Yeah, I'm going to put all of the uh, books that we talk about in the show notes so people can check them out. Lord of the Rings series almost got me, uh, uh, really seriously affected my grades <laughs> in uh, the first term I was at Michigan State. Because instead of studying, I was reading Lord <laughs> of the Rings too much. <laughs> um my favorite, I thought that one of the best books I read about Vietnam was by Carl, an author named Carl Marlentes, M-A-R-L-A-N-T-E-S, called Matterhorn. And that's just a, if you want to, you know, grunts in the jungle book, that's, that's the best one that I've, that I've read. Uh, but he wrote, uh, Marlentes wrote a, um, a fact book about coming home from Vietnam that I thought really hit the nail on the head with a lot of with a lot mm. of things and I tried to incorporate some of that in uh, in uh, Sunshine Blues he pointed out that you know you had soldiers and this didn't happen in in previous wars but you had soldiers in Vietnam they'd be there for a year they'd be in intense combat and everything and then their year was up and they pulled them in some cases right out of the jungle uh, on a mission and they're you know, within 24 hours, they've taken a, you know, an air flight across halfway around the world, and they get off the airplane in the United States and get out of the army, they get processed out of the army. And, and it's been little over one day, they've gone from intense combat to being a civilian again. That is crazy. When you think about it, we should not have been doing that. Uh, and I think that's one reason uh, veterans have had, and it's been that way in every war the United States has fought since then, uh, there's not a lot of uh, attention has been paid to the transition from, from being a soldier to getting into civilian life. And it's, a, you know, it's a hard adjustment for, uh, I think, anyone to make, and particularly for troops who have been in combat. Uh, so I tried to put some of that in uh, Sunshine Blues, uh, because it's just a it's just a difficult thing. This is um, a hard, que difficult question, in my opinion. But what has been your favorite book ever in your life? I'm going to say Catch Twenty Two. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, uh, I've read that one about three or four times, and I love the movie too. I mean, a lot of people complain about the movie, be not being as good as the book, but. Yeah, they tried to do different things in the movie than they did in the book, but I thought both were excellent. And uh, Joseph Heller's, uh, I think that was the only Joseph Heller book I liked. Uh, and I liked it a lot. Uh, I just liked the dark humor. Um, other people have tried to do that and, and not as well. Uh, I didn't think, I think Heller was probably inspired by, uh, oh, what's the TV series? Uh, with the Korea in the Korean War with the doctors. Mash. Mash. Yeah. 
I read I read the Mash novel, and that was pretty good. But I liked Joseph Heller's was just just so good. And I've read you know some other World War II fiction that I thought was uh, was very good, but uh, his was uh, so off the wall. Uh, Tim O'Brien did one uh, going after Cacciato, I think it's called, that I really liked, and uh, I think that was inspired by Catch Twenty Two in in many ways, and. Uh, that won a National Book Award, and it happened when I was at the at the Free Press. Uh, that book came in. You know, the publishers send books to the uh, newspapers because oh, they yeah. want to get reviews. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen anymore because <laughs> nobody, hardly anybody, reviews books and newspapers any longer. But anyway, that one came in, and the book editor papers had book editors back then. <laughs> the book editor gave it to me because I was a Vietnam vet. And I read it and I, and I liked it. And uh, I wrote something about it, you know, because they, at that time they were putting in very short reviews that were only two or three paragraphs. And I think I wrote the two or three paragraphs and it didn't get in the paper uh, right away. And then he won the National Book Award and the book editor panicked. She'd thrown out the review I'd written and she was desperate for me to, to go back and write a, a story about the National Book Award and to do it right away. I'd read the book two or three months before. I couldn't remember it as, you know, well enough. So I called the publisher. And I ended up interviewing Tim O'Brien uh, about the book. And I got a great story out of it. And uh, it led the book section that week. So <laughs> that worked out fine. But that was a, that was a very good book. So... We added another one. <laughs> I know. Catch-22 is, uh, is my favorite. Thank you for all these book recommendations. It's totally going to be Bob's virtual bookshelf in the show notes. So tell us what you're working on right now. I'm working on a uh, third book in the Sunshine series, and it's a little different from the uh, first two, as, as you probably know, because you've been reading some excerpts from it. It's... I'm thinking right now going to be the last one. I think I'm going to make make it, you know, make this a trilogy. And it's basically about the coming home experience, you know, from Vietnam. But of course, there's another big story going going on in it. And I don't think Jimmy, the main character, is even aware of the uh, problems he's having are related to his war experience. And I did write between the two Sunshine books that are uh, published now, between them, I did write that murder mystery. I, don't, I have no desire to make that a series, at least not right now. Uh, what I want to do next, I've really sort of been bitten by the historical fiction bug. And I, I'm really thinking of going back and uh, further in history. I'm getting interested in the, in the Indian chief Tecumseh because... It's actually another war experience. He was a uh, pivotal figure in uh, the War of 1812. He was a fascinating character. He was a great speech maker and uh, spoke several languages. And uh, I'm just starting to look at, look at him. I think that it's an important part of American history that hasn't been written about enough. Yeah. Um, I, I did a science fiction story a month or two ago. But I, I sort of feel like I'm not smart enough to, um, you know, to, <laughs> to write science fiction. I think science fiction is really hard to do. But I, this was not very science. It wasn't very scientific, but it was kind of fun to write. And I, I might try and write a few more short stories like, like that. Well, it was an extremely funny story. And you got a great reception when you read it at a writer's festival uh, last month. 
I want to do another one, but I haven't got a good idea for it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Inspiration will strike. (laughs) Yeah, as it often does. Well, thank you so much for taking us on a journey of your literary life. I'm not so sure it's very literary. Uh, I'm, I strive to entertain, not uh, not impress people with you know, with wordsmithing. <laughs> it's still uh, literary. Yeah, I guess. I get. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I'm I'm really interested in in all of the authors. Uh, I find it fascinating all of the authors who were not taken very seriously when they were writing, but long after they died, and you know, we realize how good they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Philip K. Dick. I mean, he told great stories. Shakespeare was that way. He was seen as a real hack, uh, you know, during his time. The person that the Confederacy of Dunces person, what's his name? I, that one. I, don't know. I think his book was published up posthumously, but he became his novel became wildly successful after he died. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the English writer uh, who did usually uh, about 2,000 words a day, whether he felt like writing or not. You know, he just ground them out and he was seen as a hack and he wrote, oh, 40 or 50 novels uh, in the 1800s. And now he's studied in English <laughs> English classes all over the world. <laughs> I don't know who, it wasn't Anthony Trollope. That's the one I was thinking. Right? All right. Well, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. I loved uh, hearing about the um, the way that you're incorporating your own history and the history of, uh, you know, the Vietnam War and all of this with into your writing. And it's uh, been very fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And uh, uh, I'm really interested in seeing all the stuff that you've done yourself recently, when you're not just the podcast, but uh uh, the Vampire Dentist. I, I love that. <laughs> I always love those stories. <laughs> Marjorie Vampire Dentist. Yes, thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. History, journalism, fiction, and Square Peg Pete. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion with Bob Calverly. And as always, All of his book recommendations, as well as his links, including his website and his Amazon author page, are linked in the show notes. Thank you, my friends, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love it if you'd subscribe and leave a five-star rating or share it with friends. Join me next time for another episode of The Writer, The Reader, and The Podcast. (music) Thank you.